This podcast is a recording of In Conversation with Scott Agnew. The recording was part of a live webinar broadcast on the 24th of March, 2021. So what I'll do is I'll start and I'll have a bit of a spiel for everyone to begin with before we get chatting to Scott. So just bear with me for a second. Um, so good evening, everyone, and welcome to the first SX Scotland In Conversation event. I'm Scott Baxter and I'm SX's Alcohol Harm Improvement Coordinator. For those of you who might be unfamiliar with SX, we are a project created by Waverley Care, Scotland's leading charity for people affected by HIV, hepatitis C and sexual health. SX was set up in 2017 and is about improving the sex health and well-being of gay and bisexual men and all men who have sex with men in Scotland. Tonight's guest is also called Scott, just to confuse things. He is the comedian Scott Agnew. He's critically acclaimed Glaswegian comedian and stand-up, and is considered one of the best storytellers in the business. Did you write this, or did I get this off of the? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think there's a press release that's been kicking about for about fifteen years. So. Yeah, it was either yeah. that or Wikipedia, so that's yeah. not what I could find <laughs> elsewhere. And Wikipedia is um, a footballer for Aloha. <laughs> <laughs> I should have just read that one out. That would have yeah. been a bit more surreal. Um, <laughs> He's a former journalist, TV presenter, and has appeared frequently on radio. Scott has also hosted Glasgow's Gay Pride March in 2012 in front of over 8,000 people. Just a note for everyone, this webinar is being recorded, but only our faces and our voices will be seen and heard. No names or anything else will be shown. Um, after talking with our guests, we'll have a Q&A session at the end, and you can send your questions throughout the webinar by using the question tab. The questions tab appears on the control panel, which should be on the right side of your screen. We'll do our best to get to all your questions, but apologies in advance if we don't have time. I'd like to also thank my colleague, Chris Clare Ward, who set up this webinar, and he will be looking after the technical side. So he'll be the sort of disembodied voice you might hear occasionally and me talking to someone off screen. Um, finally, I'd like to thank everyone who signed up to attend the event and for the amazing amount of donations we've actually received through people subscribing. The money will make a significant impact with the work we do looking after sexual health and well-being of the community that we work with. So over to you, Scott. How are you doing this evening? Not too bad. Uh, I, I, I should probably apologise for those that don't know me and, <laughs> and seen, the, <laughs> seen the photograph that was on the, the event <laughs> link. Uh, that was, well, I think that was about uh, 2012, so 10 years ago when I had a freshly shaved head and freshly shaved um, mm. uh, chin and whatnot, but I have been growing, growing a sort of my hair long and a beard for. Uh, Is it going lockdown. to stay, or do you think you'll get it cropped off when you get a chance? Um, see, I, I cropped off, I cropped off the first lockdown, um, but I'm, I'm, I'm kind of fancying treating myself to a bit of a kind of posh day at a barber's and have a nicely sort of properly looked after beard like your own, Scott. So Ooh, thank you. Yeah. you know, it was very very trim and. <laughs> yeah, this Very is smart. actually done with a blunt razor myself, so this is not a <laughs> one, but it's like really gelled in to make you look presentable tonight. Well, I've not, see, I've not mastered the skills of the gelling in a beard yet, so. I know, that'll be good. So how have you been during lockdown? What have you been occupying your time with? Because I'm assuming things like stand-up is kind of like... Done, gone. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I've... I, I've done a grand total of two gigs um, since uh, since last March. So, have they been um, live or have they been online? Um, they were online. One was in Stan Comedy Club in Glasgow without an audience and 
on a, a, a YouTube link, mm. um, and one was Susie McCabe's Comedy Cellar, which is a kind of strange sort of modern Tron invention thing, where there's a, where there's a huge sort of, I, I don't know if you've been watching WWE wrestling, they've got the kind of Thunderdome, which is just a, a wall of screens and people's faces on them, uh, and then a sort of green screen backdrop, um, which was, uh, both were very, very good. Um, but you know they are not they are not the real thing. You know, no, so they say. No. But uh, there, there were other gigs available. There's lots of Zoom gigs going, but uh, I find it kind of difficult to sort of make the leap in my head from sitting in my living room to uh, no. the <laughs> to, laughter to, must be quite different. I'd have thought as well. Like yeah, yeah, uh, you get you get you get nothing. Somebody's attempting to phone me, which is difficult. <laughs> Uh, so uh, the yeah yeah the laughter the laughter is really really difficult to sort of gauge, um, particularly when you were in the stand comedy club and there was mm. nobody there other than the other acts that were on. <laughs> so uh, who have kind of heard your stick a million times before, but um, it's, it's it's all been good. I'm quite, I, I didn't realise how much of a kind of hermit I am. Uh, that I'm, I'm not the social. Uh, as much of a social animal as I thought I was, mm -hmm. as long as I can occupy myself with something to read or something to watch, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm not too bad. So how have you found, because um, a lot of people we talk to in our services and stuff, I've had quite a tough time over the last year with mental health and isolation and things like that. How have you been yourself with all that? Um, I mean, <laughs> I suppose it's kind of difficult to gauge. You think, I mean, I... I, I I feel as if I've been not too bad. There's been some. There's been some really kind of dark times as well, um, and and just to be kind of contrary, sometimes I'm a bit. You know, I'm I'm not necessarily one that would that reaches out too much. I, I'm because sometimes I feel like I don't need to sort of put a face on for people. You know, you could, I don't know whether that's just the. You know the performer you kind of feel oh i need to make an effort so i actually i'm more likely to sort of kind of retreat into myself um and that's i'm i'm, I'm good with that <laughs> i kind of have to remind friends mm -hmm. uh, if i disappear for a month worry you know but you know a couple of weeks is, is all right you know um and mm -hmm. it's, it's difficult to manage sounding ungrateful with <laughs> with also sort of looking after yourself at the same time you mm. go actually i'm all right i'm do you know sometimes it's okay to sit for three days feeling really low it's all mm. right to feel your feelings sometimes absolutely um, you don't have to block them out um, and it's all right to tell other people to piss off <laughs> yeah did you find any new ways to cope with that like did you become the next banana bread king or um no <laughs> Uh, not particularly. I mean, I, 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 I didn't. I, I, I can't. I can't. I mean, I, I, I probably put on four stones <laughs> in weight. So um, I mean, I've not drank. I've stopped smoking. So um, my, my, I've been, I've been comforting myself with food. Uh, whilst I've been, whilst I've been in lockdown, but I can't say I've taken up any new skills. I've just spent an awful lot of time sort of reading, and that's been. Oh, that's good. Yeah. That's. You know, I mean, nothing. I'm, I'm a bit of a kind of, sort of political animal, ex-journalist, so I kind of can get right into sort of current affairs and news to the point that you can set yourself a bit mad watching what's going on. Mm. Um, but it's it's, it's 
I've, I've been all right, but there's been uh, a, what I have noticed um, is actually friends that I would have considered less stable, you know, much like myself, have actually coped okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's been friends who are not necessarily used to sort of sort of traumas or difficulties or inconveniences are kind of falling apart, which mm-hmm. I found that that interesting. Um, yeah. Which which has been been unsettling to see, but then you kind of go, yeah. ah, you don't, you know, you don't have. It took a while to figure out that you don't get this. You don't normally. Yeah. You don't have to deal with interruptions and things not working for you. Or, mm-hmm. You know, be a, you know a shortage of money or not being able to do something you want to do. Um, and and relying on the state, so to speak, in in the wider world, you're you're not used to that. And now that you're doing it, you're you're finding it difficult. And maybe you've got an understanding why certain people do start to fall apart. You know? Yeah, it's very true. Because I mean, mental health has been something that you've spoken at length about in interviews and, and yep. different things like that. And I wanted to ask you about going back a few years now, and you know, it's been in the press, and you talked about it. The, the drug and alcohol use that you had, um, you know, about I think if I'm right, about 10 years ago, that you got quite heavily involved with drug scene and alcohol. And I was wondering if you could like to tell me, you know, what happened with you, with you mental health and sort of ending up in that sort of scene at the time and what was going on in your life? Um, the kind of sort, of sort of latterly, so if we kind of take it from, from 2012, shall we say, was kind of 2012 sort of uh, and I suppose a trigger warning. Um, you know, 2012 was the last time I made an attempt on my life, um, and that was that was my fourth attempt over the course of sort of 10, 10 years, um, and so that that kind of last attempt on my life that again was unsuccessful and didn't work. Kind of sort of led to a, a kind of attitude of right, well, you know. Well, this isn't this isn't working, and I need to kind of regulate how I'm doing things myself. Um, and I, I kind of fell into fell into the you know the, the chemsex scene, and, and that's what it was MCAT, crystal meth, uh, and whatnot from from that point onwards. But the previous ten years to that, if you like, um, was basically just I. I suppose as the old special song goes, you know, a bit too much, too young. Um, you know, I'd left school, was working as a journalist, uh, and I and I literally had gone from having a little squirrel super savers account to having an <laughs> to having um, you know a job and a bank account. And when I went in to get my bank account, uh, you know, you're talking about 99, 2000, they were throwing banking products at you then. Um so I was given, you know, a bank account, an overdraft, you know, an ISA, a pension, a checkbook, a credit card, uh, and and every bank along Rutherglen Main Street, which is where I was working, was allowing you to do that, you know, all based on a £7,000 a year salary. Um, and then I got a mortgage and blah, blah. So by the time I was sort of 22, 23, I was kind of burnt out. Um, and I was, I was working as a journalist. It was a kind of, and I was, doing stand-up as a kind of hobby. So it was, there was an awful lot of alcohol and, you know, not a, they weren't jobs or occupations that required a great deal of responsibility. They were kind of, they were, they were both good, fun occupations and they were easy to get sort of swept up in. Um, so that was 
kind of where we got to um, when I was 23, I felt. Um, when I was 23, sorry, there was just a, a message popped up. I didn't know. I know, I saw that as well. That's it? okay. Um, so when I was when I was 23, um, I I kind of had what I would call my first breakdown. I had taken a job um, at a local authority, um, which was supposed to solve all of my problems. You know, it was it was 35,000 pounds a year. I was going to be able to pay off my credit card and all my debt, and I lasted a week in the job because I was already I was already kind of what I can now recognise as going into sort of manic periods and whatnot. Um, and I had this horrible, well, not this horrible moment, I was sitting listening to a, a, a counsellor talking about potholes in South Lanarkshire at half past eight on a Monday morning, and I thought, I'm going to be dead in the inside before I'm dead in the outside, and this is not what I want for my life. And I took the lift up and resigned from my job that morning, you know. And in a week, wow. Yeah, so I, within a week, um, and my way of what I'd figured out in my head, well, it's fine, I'll just sell my house. So I then put my house in the, on the market that afternoon um, and then, you know, sold that. So I then had no house and I well, fortunately made a profit in the house, which kind of then fueled this sort of two-year party because uh, fed into my sort of grandiose ambitions and got a gorgeous big flat in, in Glasgow city centre. Um, and, you know, and through the cash, literally, because I, I had an altercation in the bank and I withdrew all the cash and put it in a, a hold all <laughs> and took it into the city, took that into the city centre and just stuck it in a cupboard when it sat there for a year. So that kind of behaviour and that acting out lasted for, for two years uh, until my 25th birthday, which is when I made the sort of, because it was all terribly melodramatic. Um, I was going to, you know, I was going to take my life on my 25th birthday because it's a quarter of a century. It's a nice round number and be on my birthday. So there's no more than one day um, for folk to mourn. You know, the day I was born and the day I died. It was all very <laughs> melodramatic. Um, it, it didn't happen as it as it happened, but um, that was that was the first time I realised, you know, that I, there was there was something sort of major uh, going on with oh, yeah. my um, behaviour, you know, and it. And, and you know, and that took to sort of lots of drink, and you know, there was kind of cocaine then. Uh, you know, high, you know, oversexed, you know, saunas and one night stands. You know, everything. It was all sort of cascading into uh, one another. And my GP at the time, I can't say it was terribly helpful. You know, it was. Um, you know, because we are. You know, two thousand and five doesn't sound that long ago, but you know. Mm. It, it was kind of eons ago and the GP kind of went, well, you're, you're kind of sort of like that, you know, and he kind of done this flourish with his hands. Um, and I wouldn't even like that. Well, he's a quite, you know, fan boy. You like to live your life to the fullest, don't you? Um, and I was kind of, came, came away with a sort of diagnosis of being a flamboyant sort of <laughs> hedonistic homosexual rather yeah. than... Which the, is pretty terminal. <laughs> yes, uh <-huh. laughs> Uh, rather than maybe you need some some help, and mm. you kind of then end up sort of playing up to that role um, over the years. Um, Do you think it gave you permission? 
sense. I, I don't know. I was kind of doing that anyway, you know. Um, but I, I mean, I, I wasn't. I wasn't necessarily, and you know, I wasn't in control of it. Um, I, I was. I was a. I was aware of what I was doing, but I couldn't stop myself from doing it, you know, mm-hmm. until something came to a kind of a shuddering halt, you know, and be that, you know, you're running out of cash. But then you were also, I was kind of in a scenario where I never ever ran out of cash because as a stand up, a lot of that at that time, mm-hmm. what your wages was, you know, it was kind of cash in hand. And, yeah. and then the night would sort of roll on for days at a time and you'd be in casinos and you'd win something, <laughs> you know, it kind of, it could just all snowball. Uh, and then eventually, you know, and I had so much energy, you know, when I was on what I would call, I used to call it my kind of Friday afternoon feeling. You could feel it bubbling up, you know, but you would get it randomly on a Tuesday, Tuesday morning. Um, and you're like, oh, what am I going to get up to? <laughs> what am I going to get up to? Mm-hmm. Um, and then you'd sort of fire yourself, you know, a cannon, a cannonball, you know, a cannonball out of a cannon, um, and literally could end up anywhere. Uh, and it wasn't until you were let, you know, either you ran out of all available funds or people that would sort of tap you or you could borrow money from, uh, or you literally just the energy just stopped and mm-hmm. you had to go to your bed for two two weeks, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, it would go like that in these kind of strange cycles like that, yeah. uh, and it. And it wasn't until sort of much sort of later on that there was a kind of sort of question of, all right, we think, you know, initially the initial diagnosis was cyclothymia, but since then it's kind of been revised to sort of bipolar. Uh-huh. Um, but, you know, that was 13 years I spent sort of to arguing, trying to get some kind of, some kind of help for my mental health issues yeah. uh-huh. and, and reaching out and not, not getting what you needed um you know i was was thinking there because a lot of people who may uh certainly there'll be many people who identify with bipolar or or forms of depression that you have and alcohol will certainly play a large part in a sort of self-medication for things but i think when being gay and having the access to uh, partying and drugs that a lot of people might not. How did you find that sort of move between alcohol into the drug? I know you mentioned cocaine, uh, which some people would see as just a recreational drug, but when you start looking at things like crystal meth, the sort of the game changes a bit. Yeah. So how did that bridge sort of connect for you? I mean, it sounds, I, I, I would always, I, I, I maintained at the time, you know, um, and there's many an argument with, with my mother, the, the lovely Ur Ethel, <laughs> who's been who has been a saint. Um, but you know, I, I'd always maintained I wasn't I wasn't addicted to alcohol. I knew I, I, I knew I drank a lot. I drank too much, mm-hmm. but I knew it wasn't. An, you know, it was it was never an addiction. It was never ever something I needed to get me. You know, to do something. It was just always around. Mm-hmm. Um, I. I could, you know, I said the same about. I can say the same about cocaine at the time. Um, I didn't particularly get addicted to that, and the reason I knew I didn't get addicted to that was the people that I was running with ended up in the jail for some kind of fraud conviction. So as soon as their good cocaine stopped, I stopped as well. <laughs> so, right, so when the tap dried up, yeah. Uh huh. You know, so so I knew that wasn't an issue. I knew I was in trouble when you know I was on methadone and and. Uh, 
and, and crystal meth and MCAT, you know, um, because I, I, I was addicted to that. There was no, you know, no two ways about that. And that, that lasted for sort of four years. Um, mm. And that, that's when something gets scary, when you, for what, and I don't particularly know what it was in your own body, your own mind, that you go, I'm, you know, I, I could make the distinction between the alcohol and the cocaine and this, that, um, that I knew that I was, that I was, that I was hooked to it. You know, and plus also my, just, you know, the interest of being open about it, um, you know, I, you know, I was an injecting drug user when it came to crystal meth and MCAT. Um, so that's obviously a very extreme way yeah. of doing it and would explain why it then becomes so much so much more uh, addictive. Yeah. Um, At the height of the time, how often would you be using crystal meth over that four years? Was it how uh, regular would it have been for you? Uh, crystal meth, not as regular as the MCAT simply down finances but yeah. um you know it would it would crop up at least a couple of times a month somewhere but the MCAT um at the time was you know mm-hmm. easily sort of four or five days a week um sometimes you know you could just go into full on two three week binges sure. um which and what did you find that the MCAT and Christmas were doing for you? I mean, uh, how was it working for you as something to use? Because, uh, you know, people use drugs for many different reasons, but, I mean, uh, was it disassociative? Was it to do with sex? Was, I mean, how really... I mean, was- yeah, I mean, it was... Um, I, I, I got introduced to me when I was living... I was living in Manchester for a year, um, and I was very, very, very thankful of my year in Manchester for, <laughs> for various reasons, Um but that was the, that was the first time that I had experienced crystal meth, and also the first time I had experienced slamming, um, mm-hmm. you know, which is injecting. Injecting, injecting. Um, and it kind of, you know, I, you know, the, the 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 feeling and that went along with it, um, sort of. <laughs> Was different and left. I, I wasn't. I have to be honest. The first time I wasn't one hundred percent aware of what was going on, um, but I was aware of something being very, very different and quite profound. Um, I know that sounds like I'm talking riddles, um, but there was there was a definite shift, and I was kind of curious as to what it was that had happened at, at that gathering, that party that night, um, and I, you know, and I found out what it was and. Um, and then I, I found myself, I was, I was flat sitting for a friend in Brixton in London. Um, and, you know, quite, you know, and then there was one point I wasn't, you know, the flat that I was supposed to be looking after, I wasn't in for three weeks, you know, because I'd found myself somewhere along, uh, you know, Charing Cross Road, which I basically just moved into for two or three weeks. And that's where it kind of kicked in. Came back to Glasgow thinking, oh, this doesn't happen. <laughs> it's, not, it's not, it's not really a scene here. Um, and and then my next, you know, my my grinder neighbour, <laughs> the, the hookup app, um, my my grinder neighbour, put it this way, was uh, was very keen on on 
sort of those those chems and that kind of thing. So, it, you know, I, I I fell into it and it became a became a regular a regular thing at that point. It probably yeah, it was sorry he answered your question. Sure. Um, it was it was sex related. Uh huh. Um, I've always been. Well, I've always been very, very conscious uh, about my about my weight. Um, you know, I, I have been everything between, you know, twelve stone and whatever I am now, which might be twenty four stone. I've been up and I've been up and down, um, but it's it's always been something I've been really conscious of, um, and yeah, something like that. Those kind of drugs do make you feel good. Do they make you feel? sexy they make you feel desired or desirable and also kind of make you not think about your usual hang-ups and uh and inhibitions that you would you would you would normally have um yeah. and, and you know and i've also got the kind of <laughs> i've also got the classic sort of tick off background i went to a catholic school we were all told we were an abomination you know I, when i was coming out you know, it was literally the keep the cause campaign was going on again. You know, in the background, mm -hmm. so I, I kind of have that natural. You know, you know, sex is dirty, gay sex is even dirtier. You're an abomination, uh, and you know, mm -hmm. so you've got that kind of classic thing playing in the background as well. Um, it's, a, it's a sort of that, not necessarily just Catholic, but it's a gay sort of narration that goes on for many of us that kind of tell us who we were supposed to be and things like that. Uh, yeah, and and you're told who you're supposed to be. Uh, I, I, yeah, I mean, just... I was going to say, because the, the experience you had with your GP was, I think a lot of people even for today would find that quite shocking of just, you know, telling you to essentially just live your life because that's who you are. What kind of, I mean, because we think of it in our own services, what would you have liked your GP to have done? What do you think would have made a difference, even now for people speaking to GPs or to health professionals, about how you were feeling? Um, I, I, I think, I, I definitely think things of saying that I'm kind of in the system now, if that makes any sense, mm -hmm. because I'm being looked after by, um, you know, by the people at the Brownlee. Um, I'd like to think things are better now. Um, I would like to think that a GP would um, would understand that uh, that the person that's coming to that the person that's presenting you, you know, presenting themselves to them, looking for help, is looking for help. That there's that don't kind of dismiss. So I don't know. I, I think I, I think there was so many kind of. I think back in two thousand and five, there was so many. You know, they, they thought that we were still confused about our sexuality. I think they were trying to make. Oh, well, you you know, you you've not had enough of a lot of education what gay people are like, but it turns out you're a lot of great fun. So just you go and enjoy yourself, and you know, it might have been some strange kind of encouraging way that. Oh, he just doesn't know what it's like, and I'm and I'm going. This is not who I am, you know. This is not, yeah. not not the sexuality part, but the behaviour that I'm displaying because, yeah. you know, it I, sounds like he could have been telling you just to you're okay in your life, but that's not actually what you were asking. Yeah. No, and uh, and and I and I did feel out of control, and I and I don't know whether he had what he what he didn't, you know, 
he didn't get that. I I went from being, a, you know, the perfect teenager as I was never in bother. I didn't drink underage. Mm. I I did my homework. I was you know, studious. I wasn't hanging about around about street corners. And you know, got a job. You know, the job that I wanted. Um, and had performed well in that job. And then suddenly there was a, you know, I, I there was a noticeable change in my behaviour, mm. which he sort of <laughs> just linked to the fact I'd came out, you know, yeah. Um, yeah. and, and it, it wasn't, there was a, there was a very, and yes, yeah, see the person, not the sexuality, I think would be, would be my message. Yeah. I know, because we've been, we talked to a lot of uh, GPs and, and health professionals about that, that it can even today still be a situation where they try and use their sexuality as a way to diagnose us, you know, yeah. it, it, he's doing this because he's gay or whatever and it's clearly we need to look like you said look at the individual and our mental health can come from a variety of things and not just necessarily being gay but even though of course we do have our you know issues growing up and uh, the bullying and the stigma and stuff like that that does happen you know did you find that when yourself growing up I mean you mentioned the catholic background but bullying were you out at school or did you know how did all that work for you I, 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 <laughs> I had no idea uh, right the way through primary school, mm -hmm. um, through secondary, I had I, I kind of convinced myself I was you know I was asexual. Um, mm -hmm. I remember looking at I remember looking at you know guys in school, you know if it was at PE and we we're getting changed, uh, and again my issues about how about you know, about my own weight and body. Mm -hmm. I assumed it was body envy when I was looking at guys. It was body envy. Yeah. Like, oh well, I mean, if, if I looked like that person, I could get a boyfriend or a girlfriend. You know, I, I could get a girlfriend. Uh, that that was where my mind went to. Um, mm. You know, again, in retrospect, I look back and you go, "Oh, there was lots of little signs," but there was no. I, I literally didn't have a vocabulary to identify what it was that I was yeah. feeling. You know, because it wasn't you know it wasn't talked about other than kind of later on when you know uh, cardinal winning was on tv sort of screeching um about yeah. about it was being an abomination but that was that was that was kind of 97 98 but mm. prior to that i didn't have a i didn't have any words there was no was yeah and also like are you like six foot five or something you must have been quite I'm six foot five. I'm built like a brick shit house. Do you know? Yeah. <laughs> Difficult um, to bully, I suppose. I, I, yeah, I was never, I was never, and you know, I was never bullied, and I, and I was, you know, and I have to be honest, I haven't really ever been homophobically abused. But again, I appreciate the fact I am the way I am and how I look, um, and that's not necessarily some something that folk do all the time. You know, my experience is a bit different. Um, and I'm, it doesn't mean I don't get that people are. I'm, I'm, I'm aware that I'm quite lucky that, that 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 kind of generally blokey exterior kind of mm. allows me to excuse the word pass. So yeah, you know, um, I I've been out with you know boyfriends and partners, and I've you know they've had the looks, and I've had the you know the, the kind of whispered comments, um, you know, and then you even just you get strange. This is slightly off topic, but you get strange kind of backhanded homophobia as well. 
Um, and it's sometimes not always sort of badly meant. <laughs> but if I've been on and I've done a, you know, I've been on stage, done a gig, um, and you know, and, I'll, and then I'll reveal my sexuality maybe at some point through the gig, and you'll you'll get a guy, you know, with his his girlfriend, <laughs> and he'll kind of point to her. Oh, she loved it. She loved it. Right? Is it? <laughs> he takes no responsibility for you know. She loved it. I'm giving. I'm making no comment at all. Mm -hmm. um, and and you can often you're on stage and you can see them laughing and enjoying it. You know, but to admit that they've enjoyed you would be awful. Yeah. You know. And then the kind of other classic one is, you know, I would have, I would have had a pint with you. Oh, well, then you went and ruined it and told us you were a big, <laughs> a big gay boy, you know. It was like uh, the ultimate Scottish compliment. I'd have uh -huh. had a pint with you. Uh -huh. you know? but, but now, <laughs> now I can't possibly. No. So I kind of get that odd, strange, yeah. twisted. They're trying to be nice, but there's actually just this kind of laced homophobia underneath it. I know. I think I think a lot of that might be in part too. We don't really see such a variety of gay or lesbian or trans people on television or films that are a wide spectrum, as we all know we are. You know, the, no. the media is lazy when it comes to stereotyping. I suppose. I, yeah, I mean, I, I remember recording something once, and um, and I'll you know, it doesn't matter, you know. It, it, <laughs> and after it, I was approached by the producers and went, "Yeah, you didn't, you didn't do any gay stuff." And I went, "Well, no, I didn't, because it, it wasn't relevant." <laughs> it's yeah. like, um, and you could kind of see them sort of scratching their head a wee bit. Um, but oh, well, this is we brought you on here to mm. tick a box, and yeah. you know, and now we can't tick the box <laughs> because <laughs> or we, we can't. So we can't emphatically tick the box because yeah. as much as yes he might be a gay person but he didn't do any gay things yeah. you know <laughs> so but you didn't perform the way they expected you to no you know you used to have minced on here in high heels with a feather mm -hmm. boa uh you know and referred to as all in female pronouns you know that that's what you're supposed to do um but so that mm -hmm. that's that, that can be odd as well um, yeah I, I want to return if you don't mind uh, back to discussing about what I'm, what I'm here to discuss. Here to discuss. So, <laughs> I just find like the, the comedy instruments are great. We need them. I'm sorry. So, um, because you're, as you've talked openly as well about your HIV status, yeah. and I, I, of course, I want to ask you about that. And I think you, because when we spoke before, I'd like you to sort of just tell us you had a really good this story about how you unexpectedly diagnosed with HIV, and I, I don't know if you want, if you know what I'm talking about there. Uh, um, well, it was expected and unexpected at once. Um, we kind of, you know, I was I was properly in the kind of, you know, in the grips of um, of the sort of came sex scene. I was properly addicted. I was I was in a relationship um, at that point with somebody that I'd met on the came sex scene as well. Um, and uh, my partner was at that point was 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 positive, but on meds, mm -hmm. um, and they they get diagnosed not long after I'd kind of started seeing it. And there was a, a kind of discussion, you know, will you you know stick you know will you go out with me, you know, will you stick by me, sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Absolutely not a, not an issue. 
Um, so he was in his meds. I was all right. I, I was, you know, I was in my mind. I was all right. I was, I was protected. Uh, and we sort of started to, you know, we started to sort of dabble with other people as well at that point, uh, sort of further down the line in the noise ship. Um, and it was at the end of a end of a weekend um, session, and it was literally the kind of there was nothing, <laughs> there was no drugs left basically, uh, and somebody messaged sort of last you know almost just before we were about to turn off all the apps and you know, sort of wind up, uh, and they had drugs. Let's go to theirs. Went there, um, and. And this is one of the things, you know, because when you, when you you talk about your HIV status, you often get a lot of people go, uh, you know, who gave you, you know, and, uh, you know, who's, you know, uh, it was your fault, you were careless, you know, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. There's, a lot of, there's a lot of blame that people are desperate yeah. to throw around. Um, and, and, you know, are you angry with them? Do you, do, do you despise that person? And basically what happened that morning, because it was a Monday morning, um, and you had three people who had three different HIV statuses, you know, which is why conversation is so important that everybody sort of talks about what they're doing. The person whose house we were at was uh, undiagnosed, was HIV positive, undiagnosed, a recent, you know, seroconversion. Who had assumed that because my partner was HIV positive, that I was HIV positive as well. Um, and then, but nobody asked, there was literally no conversation about this. So you had three people in sort of three different states of, three different stages of their HIV diagnosis, you know, um, and it was just a lack of conversation, a lack of communication, a lack of chat that morning um sure. this was a few years back this was before prep so that just before mm -hmm, ending yeah. uh ask a question so i then hadn't really given that a thought um and then fell ill um on on valentine's day which was <laughs> which was nice some folk get chocolates oh. and flowers but um um i know <laughs> sorry sorry oh, it shouldn't be laughing no no it's fine but uh, and I hadn't, I just thought it was a bit of a cold. It was, I was ill for two or three days. Um, I was actually, you know, it, it wasn't a dreadful, you know, cold or flu. It was, it was a pretty bad, pretty bad one, but I was still able to go and do a Waverly Care fundraiser on the Wednesday, Thursday night, uh, oh, three days later. Uh, I, I did look like death warmed up, um, you know, and I remember people kind of reacting to me when they seen me. I was just kind of grey, but I was also in the back of a come down from a weekend of lots mm. of drugs, so it wasn't unusual for me to look absolutely and utterly atrocious at that point. Um, and you know, then got my my, my other half kind of uh, advice. You know, kind of said, "I think you know you, you need to go and get tested again." So it was, uh, I wasn't. I had I had went for so long 
dodging it, you know, I kind of thought I was invincible, so to speak. Mm. Uh, you kind of start to think I haven't, you know, because the, the 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 distance between me, sort of, between the encounter with contracted HIV uh, and when I uh, was diagnosed was, well, from the 27th of January, 20, uh, sorry, 18th of January until the 27th of March was when I was diagnosed six years ago. So there was there was no time at all um between it so i wasn't yeah. in any kind of limbo wondering um i suppose, I suppose that the reality of it was that there'd been such a, a long period of time of you attending parties and chemsex and like you said you hadn't you dodged it in a sense uh, up until that point and i think for certainly people attending listening um i take it with when the drug taking is involved and even it can happen with alcohol as well. The whole safer sex thing disappears out the window because uh, prep wasn't available at the time. And so, was condoms ever something that came up in conversation at any of these events? Um, I, I no. I mean, I, I I don't recall it ever being you know something that was, was it sort of par for the course. And that was kind it was, of it, yeah. It was just it was you know if if a condom was if I seen a condom being used, it was generally somebody sort of ripping out the insides to make a cock ring out the, the other part of the, the, the stem of it. Um, that, that was that, the, the kind of honest, the honest truth of it. It, it, was, it was something that wasn't a consideration or it wasn't a concern. Mm. I mean, the thing was, I had, you know, I, and I think this might have been what you were alluding to, I had, you know, I'd had an HIV scare um, when I was living in Manchester and didn't go and get tested um, and had then kind of purposely only slept with HIV positive men after that. Right. And then when I did eventually get a, a test when I came back to Glasgow, I was, you know, you could have knocked me down when somebody told mm. me, you know, you, <laughs> you're, 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 you're negative. Mm. And this is when, you, this is when the penny starts to drop about it was the you know it was HIV positive men that were looking after themselves on their meds, yeah. So they weren't able to pass it on. So it was actually bizarrely, inadvertently, inadvertently looking after myself without really realizing that's what I was doing. Um, when you were diagnosed at that period, because I'm just trying to think back in time, was the whole campaign stuff with U equals U undetectable as untransmissible, was that a thing at that time? Or is that later on? Um, so, because uh, I, I can't, I think, it was, I think it was maybe about a year later, certainly. Mm -hmm. I know PrEP was available, the, the clinical trials for PrEP were happening mm -hmm. uh, in the year that I get diagnosed. Um, and I wasn't able to get, I was too late to be put on the clinical trials because when I seen um, the sexual health nurse, I was, I was looked after by the people at the, at the Brownlee mm -hmm. a little bit because I was partner of an HIV positive partner, you know? Um, mm -hmm. So they kind of took me in um, and tried to sort of tober me up and get me to get on track, you know, otherwise you're going to end up HIV positive, but there was, it was a kind of, there, there was a, I don't know, there was a sort of, sorry, there, there was just a kind of, 
I don't know. I, when you've already, as I said, in 2012, I sort of made the decision that I wasn't, I didn't want to sort of, I didn't want to live anymore. And then I wasn't able to do it. I wasn't able to, you know, follow through properly or I wasn't, it wasn't a successful attempt um, in, in 2012. And then from there on in, it was just a, well, I'm not going to care about my life. And, you know, it wasn't, if I happened to pass away, then I happened to pass away. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where it was easy to slide into into that that kind of chemsex mm-hmm. world. Um, mm-hmm. That it didn't matter whether you turned up at you know gigs. It didn't matter uh, where you know. I mean, I I turned up at gigs because it was the only way I could fund what I was doing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but um, often if gigs weren't worth much money, they yeah. would get blown off, or yeah, you would turn up in a kind of bad way. Since your diagnosis, has that changed much in that kind of direction of your life? Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it kind of there's something strange. It was there's about kind of finally hearing those, you know, those words that um, it, you know that something does change. You know that you you do then have to sort of seriously make a decision about how you want to go about living the rest of your life, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a kind of, what, what kind of came to head, my, my, the partner I was with um, decided he didn't want to be with me. My accommodation was tied up in that house. Um, you know, my accommodation was tied up in that relationship. Um, and you know the bookings had dried up as far as sort of gigs were concerned, and there was a you know you're a real kind of you know you've got no house, you've got no job, you've got no relationship, you you know you have you know spent all your kind of credit and your goodwill. So so I thought um, by this point, um, and it's you know it stops being the kind of slightly glamorous death. That you thought you were going to have, no, I know it sounds. Do you know you kind of you sort of envisage it a certain way, mm-hmm. uh, and then suddenly you maybe face the prospect that you're maybe going to end up something to lane in the city centre, you know, and you're not going to be, you know, across a bed <laughs> with the silk sheets, um, looking gorgeous. That's maybe not how uh-huh. it, how it goes, you know. And the weight wise, I've. I, get down, I was down to about 12 stone, you know, I was skeletal. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I, one, I needed somewhere to stay. And, you know, I I, I know this, this is going to sound like the BBC, but I, you know, I attended the Ten Seconds Trust uh, at that point. Um, just were about in Glasgow so, <laughs> at the time. So, um, and I just basically needed sort of help kind of try and steady the ship and know mm-hmm. where I was going and what I was doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it kind of, it was a sort of very basic, you know, the kind of sort of Maslow's pyramid of needs, you know, that um, the wonderful Paula McCabe, who no longer works with THT, but she kind of went, I'll sort you out, get your housing association flat, we'll get you your benefits, we'll get you, you know, kind of squared up. Mm-hmm. So that you're at least get somewhere warm and safe to go, you know, um, and 
I didn't even, it sounds that, I kind of didn't give the HIV diagnosis much of a thought for months. Um, and I got this, you know, I got this flat that I'm in just now. Um, and Janie Godley, which you all, you all know Janie Godley from oh, yeah. Frank Get the Door. Uh, she managed to scare everybody in the Scottish comedy community into sort of, sort of sticking some money in so this place could get decorated, you know, these, um, and there was a squad of Scottish comics who turned up in various states of sort of drunkenness and hungoverness to decorate mm -hmm. the flat. And I got, I had a community sort of around about me who made me feel sort of wanted. Uh -huh. So that changed your perspective a wee bit. Suddenly you kind of think, oh, actually people quite like me and I kind of owe these people now. Um, Karen Corrin at the Gilded Balloon in Edinburgh. Um, one of our staff, um, Lindsay Howarth, helped, helped me do about 10, 15 minutes material about being HIV positive. And she asked if I could do a show. And I knew I had to do a, a month at the Fringe the following year. Mm -hmm. You know, and it was, there was a kind of, I couldn't afford to do it. You know, they bankrolled it for me. So that kind of show of faith that I hadn't yeah. felt I'd had in the longest time, you know, um, so sort of that gave me a sort of commitment to them um, and a sort of commitment to myself and a bit of purpose and a bit of something to drive towards. Mm. Um, and that, and it took nearly the full year to get off the MCAT and the crystal meth, you know, and it, and it was really baby steps. It started at three days a week. Um, and then it was, you know, you'd, you'd managed to be off at three days in the one week, and then you'd extend that to a week, and then it was maybe a fortnight. Uh, the, the strangest thing about sort of the MTAC and the customer, the three-week mark was the hardest part to get beyond. I don't particularly know what the, the sort of psychology or the physiology is behind that, but you know, three weeks was a very, you know, you, I could go all right without it for three weeks and then it would sort of fall down in that, in that fourth week. And Did that, you get involved with any sort of Narcotics Anonymous or any group to help you through that period? Um, I, I, was, I was seeing a, a psychotherapist at Leverndale at that point. I got a, a, mm. a, a, year's, a year of psychotherapy uh, at Leverndale, which ironically I got... <laughs> I started that in the January, uh, 18 days before I contracted HIV for the first time. That was after 13 years of asking, I eventually got kind of the help that I had wanted, um, which was just kind of, you know, yeah, typical. Um, and by the March, obviously, I got my diagnosis. So we spent three months talking about the kind of nitty gritty of what was going on with me. Mm -hmm. uh, then I get this diagnosis and that kind of took over yeah. a good chunk of the, uh, of the, 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 the psychotherapy. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I had that going on. Um, I worked better in a kind of one-to-one -one situation. It's mm -hmm. a group therapy is not ah. ideal for me because I, I end up, I kind of feel as if I'm performing. It's a wee bit too much like my work, you know? That's what you mean, yeah, I know. Um, so I take it like uh, you managed to do your month at the fringe that following year then and everything started to improve? Yeah, um, 
so you know my, my grand plan was so long as I could manage a month without any drugs mm. um, I could do the fringe and we would be all right um, and I had this wonderful idea I was going to have a big big blowout uh, two weeks before the fringe um, you know get mad with it and then get straight but then get into the fringe um, as it happened the weekend that I planned I got asked to go and do some other gigs so I couldn't Oh, I think we might have planned. I went to the fringe, did oh, uh, went to the fringe, um, and done the whole month there. Um, fringe had went well. I was asked to go to London to do a recording of the DVD, uh, which was kind of another two weeks, so that got me into you know halfway into September. Um, so by this point now, I hadn't had anything since the end of June, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. and a wonderful friend of mine, uh, uh, Robin, had, who lived in London, but happened to have a friend's flat in Brighton for the weekend. After we'd finished, it's that I've got a party in Brighton tomorrow night. Do you fancy, you know, just a, a birthday party? And we get absolutely utterly rat arsed drinking on the Friday night, drank right the way through the whole weekend, ended up in Brighton, uh, and then by the Monday morning, you know, in all sorts of states, in the same clothes from the Friday night, and it was, and there was no drugs involved, it was just drink, and no one was an alcohol counsellor, they're not split, but it was the first time in four years that I'd had a full weekend, just, and it was fabulous fun, really connecting with people properly again, um, and I kind of went, ah, oh, you've went, you've went since July, and it's now pushing October, you've had no drugs, you feel alive like you haven't felt in a long time and you know all right this is this is kind of you've kind of i think you've kicked this you know no there's been a couple of, there was a couple of times i fell off the horse but as far as that was kind of that was the kind of back of it broken as far as i'm concerned yeah. um it's quite an incredible story because it's 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 a great period chunk of time there and and things that have happened throughout your life and I'm just thinking that's bringing us almost kind of up towards back into the comedy scene and working again. And I kind of wanted to, because we're kind of getting towards the hour there. And I just wanted to find out right. how are things with you moving forward now? I mean, have you got plans for gigs coming up? Are things starting to look better? <laughs> um, I, well, no, um, I'm sure there'll be, I'm sure there will be gigs, you know, there will be gigs. People have congregated since the beginning of time to come and watch uh, come and watch people perform and talk so mm. I'm, I'm i'm fairly certain that we'll be all right um mm. but there, there's nothing there's the i'm i i'm, I'm supposed to be doing a I, I, I am booked in with the gilded balloon for whenever there is a fringe so doing a show that, until the council got a complaint about the smell <laughs> but um mm. uh, but the one thing i would so the one thing i would say if, if people have had sort of drug issues and what nobody ever told you when you get sober it can get awful boring <laughs> have a <laughs> have an interest you know yeah. um and it's a bit sort of learning to sort of be with that downtime um mm -hmm. because it's you, you kind of lived your life in technical a wee bit um and everything was you know extremes of highs or lows uh, and and the bit in the middle is a bit dull, but you have to just sort of try and enjoy the minutiae. That's a great, that's <laughs> a, a great bit more. Thing. Yeah, 
appreciate that. And um, we've got a few questions, which um, I okay. believe my colleague Chris will have vetted them. So if I read them out like auto cue, if I say something strange, it's because I haven't read it. Before. That's all right. So first one from anonymous. I think they're all anonymous. Um, love the description of being diagnosed as a hedonistic homosexual by a doctor. Outsiders looking in often think that's just what we're like. And like any stereotype, there is some truth to it without wondering why. Why do you think this is? And do you think healthcare professionals would, would now deal with things better? Or do we still have to explain things to them too much? I kind of think we answered that a little bit when we went back to GP. Do you have anything else that comes to mind? Uh, well, I mean, yeah, the, the kind of the idea of the stereotype is, yeah, yes, it's there. We we did we we do or did go out and drink too much. It was, but and I kind of hope that might have changed because you know, you know people are coming out younger. Uh, you know, it's more yeah. acceptable to be out at school. You can sort of form healthier bonds. Uh, and friendship groups whilst you're at school or at uni that we couldn't do necessarily, you know, 20, year, 20 years ago and, and more. Um, you know, I, I didn't know there was anyone. Mm. There were other homosexuals in my school, you know, and none of us would have been. Or I, didn't, I wasn't aware that I was a homosexual <laughs> in my school. Uh, so the chances of me knowing other homosexuals at school were unlikely. So, and I had, so I had no network. You know, I had no way. So, you know, I ventured into pubs and clubs on my own. Um, yeah. You know, generally after I'd had a night out with my, you know, my straight friends, mm -hmm. you, know, you know, they were all going up the road, maybe, at, you know, 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock closing time. And I was sort of then, then going off to start another night in my other life. Um, yeah. And, and often you would be stood on your own, you know, at the end of a bar, not knowing anybody. Um, which you know, you're anxious, you're nervous, you don't know anything. So you stood there with a, you know, knock and drink back like there was no tomorrow, um, hoping somebody would speak to you or you could pluck up the courage to speak to somebody else. So it's a, it's a, you know, it's a product of the environment that we were, yeah, that we were forced to, to live in. Um, so, you know, and, and that's where it then became yeah. problematic that you had to disinhibit yourself because you were often dealing with, you know, 100% of the time with complete strangers you didn't know, hoping to make some kind of impact on them and yeah. to either become your pal or get a shag. So mm -hmm. it was a really high-pressured situation that you had no other way of dealing with other than, you know, what, what you had to hand. So yeah, no, I agree with you on that one because so many people in our generation that it was basically school, then the pub. You know, there was no gay in between sort of life. That was where you went. Your sort of understanding of your sexuality was around alcohol and meeting men. Mm -hmm. And as you said yourself, there's a lot more younger people coming out now at school, uh, you know, at all ages. And so there needs to be a gap filled there of yeah. where a community fits together and where young people can go. that doesn't involve that adult stuff. Yeah. You know, that they can, that way, by the time they get to the adult stuff, you know, they could be in a better position with alcohol. You know, that's the kind of hope. And and, and and you know online you can make you know friends and groups of friends. Um, you know you've kind of got you can have that community there, mm -hmm. and then you can choose to go and drink with them. You know, you, well, and a more relaxed nature than than standing at the end of a bar tense. Kind of, oh, We've all done it. <laughs> I don't know, somebody talk to me, please, please. 
Okay, I'll go to the next question then. They're all pretty meaty, if not going to see. So Do you I'll think the gay community... Sorry? I'll try and keep them short, the answer. So, okay. Yeah. No, it's just because the, the, the blocks of text here. Uh, do you think the gay community, rather than simply being sex positive, is perhaps hypersexualized to an extent that is damaging to our mental health and healthy relationships with each other? Not unexpectedly for a more traumatized community, there is evidence of high rates of sex addiction and love addiction with all the attendant problems. So does that make sense? Yeah. Um... Yes, I mean, yes, it does. Um, you know, are we hypersexed? Um, yeah, and more than well, just body positive, I suppose. Because you mentioned your body, yes, how you felt about your own body and the use of drugs with that. Um, I'm trying to think where to sort of start with that one. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, my, my issues around my weight, um, I, I've always had those, you know, so I, I, I wouldn't necessarily ascribe that to my sexuality. Mm. Uh, you know, the, the kind of, the general culture, <laughs> um, the general culture around it probably doesn't help, you know, that, you know, that, that however, what I, you know, as a, as a grizzled 40 year old, um, what I have realized is that sort of, that, that and having been, you know, very thin, <laughs> to have been overweight, to have been somewhere in the middle, um, there's always somebody will have you, <laughs> so to speak. Um, that's, that's optimistic. Yeah. <laughs> a, uh, but it, it's it's a kind of it, yeah. I mean, are we are we hypersexualized? I think it's again. I think it's a it's maybe a slightly generational thing. I think um, I think some my generation and upwards. Um, if you like, sort of. So we say 30 and upwards or 35 and upwards. I don't know. I'm 40, just to sort of get... Uh, I think there was kind of so little... I'm not saying there was little opportunity, but it was. It, we still had that mentality. It was frowned upon. It was the wrong thing to do. You know, it wasn't necessarily always, you know, convenient to be taking them back to, you know, as a, all the things that you would do as a teenager um, if you were a heterosexual, you could have, you know, you know, boyfriends or you know a partner of the opposite sex and bring them back to your parents house mm -hmm. you know all of these things you just couldn't do you couldn't talk about so, and and you got the chance to do that you know you know if you're fortunate enough to live in a big city you know a few hours a night so everything was boiled down and packed down and quite intense um and you had to sort of meet fall in love and shag them you know within four or five hours because you might never see them to the next weekend yeah. um, so I think we were again you're kind of forced to be hypersexualized because um yeah I I I, I think uh oh god I mean I think now uh sort of kind of younger crowd shall we say this makes me sound like Methuselah um they seem to be a bit more, I don't know, as an outsider looking in, because I'm not part of that generation, I was kind of really surprised by how quickly the kind of, when lockdown kicked in, how quickly a lot of the sort of young crowds, young gay men flocked to OnlyFans as a sort of way of sort of mm. either making money, but I think there was mm -hmm. more to it. I think they might have been 
there was they're looking for that validation you'd maybe get with flirting with people in a pub or a club, but, <laughs> but they're monetizing it. Uh, I was surprised at how comfortable they were to just make that switch. Um, it's, I actually, I'm, I'm really pleased you brought that up because that's only something I've been seeing myself. We've not discussed it in the office, but I was aware that almost every Tom, Dick and Harry ended up with an OnlyFans account. And I felt that was really unusual. And I didn't twig that it could have been to do with lockdown. But I, I mean, I kind of noticed there was a mic, there was, you know, there was <laughs> how, you know, folk that you kind of know, shall we say, from roundabout, uh, and, you, and, and you suddenly, all right, oh, they're all on, oh, they're all on my, you know, OnlyFans. Uh, and I'm, and you know, that's a, I don't know how I don't know how to feel about it. I'm like, excellent because one, I would never be on it. It's very much a twenty-four stone man eat a Greg's. Um, pay for it. As you uh, said, there's always someone out there for you. you know? There's somebody out there, um, I, and I can admire that confidence. But then I kind of wonder, mm. uh, I, uh, and then I have to tell myself off. You used to wander about in saunas and and it's sex parties for days and end. So is it really any different? Or is it yeah. just the same kind of behaviour of, you know, feeling needed or wanted, but it's just it manifests mm -hmm. itself in a different way? And you can make a few bob off it as well at the same time. Well, that's it. I mean, unfortunately, <laughs> what I was doing was costing me money. You know, <laughs> um, at least at least they're getting a bottom line. You know, it's, know. With no touching either, which is great. Uh, yeah. Okay, I'll move on to the next question. You spoke about some of your friends who'd never experienced trauma or real struggle in life, now struggling more in the pandemic, whereas the trauma experienced among us LGBTQI people being more likely to have experienced difficulty in life have coped better. It is perversely the case that we in fact have wells of resilience and healthy coping mechanisms, as well as unhealthy ones that we can tap into as a community. And how do we do that? Um, I think it's about how do we tap into our resilience as a community resilience. in times of trouble. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think I think we've always, you know, again, sort of generationally, we you know, we've, we've had to know how you know how to organise ourselves um, mm. and how to come together, um, and actually not being afraid to. Um, you know, express ourselves or, you know, or our emotions, you know, but if if we're angry, we will say we're angry. Um, if we're, you know, if we feel put upon, we'll say it. Um, you know, that what, what we're used to, you know, if you, if you, look, you look at the Pride movement, you know, and we've, we've been doing that for, you know, 50 years coming together and, and supporting one another. Uh, somehow or other, you know, uh, without being too political, you know, I mean, Nigel Farage tried to have a Brexit march, you know, and so white heterosexual men could hardly get themselves together to have a march for something that they really, really wanted, apparently, you know, and it's because they're not used to organising themselves and supporting yeah. one another like that. Uh, they kind of just expect that the world will happen because they've asked that for it to happen. Um, and I know that's a kind of roundabout political point, but I'm trying not to be. Um, but uh, yeah, I think I think I think we've been quite good. We've already got our own networks. We know mm -hmm. it's kind of what the you know it's what our pubs and bars you know for all that they're for yeah. all their ills. 
there, there, is a, there, is a, there is an element of community that you have there um, and that we can tap into one another, yeah. uh, whereby you know, maybe people from out, you know, from out with the LGBT community, um, they kind of just think that the kind of the only network is is their family unit, mm-hmm. which is not this and in such a pressurized environment that we're living in at the minute to not have somebody to tap out, you know, um, and a wider view of the world, you know, because one one of the things we've spotted is um, I've spoken to a number of people who although whether people are meeting up or not for sex is beside the point, but apps like Grindr and Scruff have, are actually being used as uh, almost confessionals, that people are chatting a lot more and people knowing that they can't hook up, but they can swap pictures, they can talk to each other, and they're, they're developing certain types of friendships online uh, through the apps, which they would never have really done before, especially something like Grindr, which is very quick and of the moment normally. Uh-huh. And you're finding that people are actually starting to make... Uh, I wouldn't say relationships as such, but possibly. And so it'd be interesting to see how that changes after lockdown and if the people that been, they were speaking to online maintain a friendship, friendship or if things change, you know, it's... I mean, I think, I think kind of... I don't know, it's going to sound slightly bizarre. I mean, I've been off Grindr now for a few years because it was far too... Yeah, I had too many sort of trigger responses when I was trying to sort of get myself back off of, mm-hmm. you know, sort of MCAT and crystal meth, so it was better just bend. Um, but, you know, we, we do sort of find sort of strange ways of building our own community. I mean, but when I, was, when, I was, when I was slamming in Glasgow at first, you know, sort of 2012, 2013, you know, there was probably only about 10 to 15 of us at that point doing that kind of thing and meeting up and we were quite a close-knit community and and there's still men from that group that I'm in touch with now um, because we we see ourselves as quite outsiders, some people were really really shocked by what we were doing Um, and so but within that you know, so 18 months after that, that initial sort of group were together, there was then lots of people indulging in what we were doing. And that sounds terrible. It's with that kind of scene sort of stuff to fall apart a wee bit. And it got more about the drugs and less about the sex and looking after. We yeah. felt we were looking after one another in our own wee way. And then it was too big for us to look, you know, for us to possibly yeah. look after it. Um, but, you know, as I said, even today I've still got those friends and connections that I, I talk to um, and and it's not often, it's not very very rare we would actually talk about those drugs some people are still in varying stages of dependency some mm-hmm. folk aren't using at all um, and we wouldn't necessarily talk about you know drug use or those those times there's more to talk about. There's more to talk about because there's yeah. because we have bonded, you know, over yeah. something. Um, so I, I, I don't like that kind of sure. No, no, right. we'll move on to the next one. We've got a shorter one here. Hi there. I meant to ask: Are the concerns of men dismissed as just gay when they might be pathologized if expressed by gay women? LGBT people historically have these issues, but it is ignored more in men. But is it ignored more in men? 
I'm not a woman and neither are you. I know, <laughs> I, I would kind of... difficult to... It would be... I, I would... <laughs> I'm not entirely sure what's been asked, if I'm honest. Yeah, I'm not... I'll read it just once more. Hi there, I meant to ask, are the concerns of men dismissed as just gay when they might be pathologised if expressed by gay women? So pathologised, I suppose, is I mean a medical issue? Like... All right, uh, is it... I don't, I, I don't know. I don't know. Are we? So I. Is it that you? Is it you know? Is, is, are you using that the, the term of just gay as a bit of a weakness? You know, concerns or issues or behaviours mm -hmm. we have, are just sort of dismissed because you're a gay man, or they're mm -hmm. actually just issues. I don't know. I don't understand the question. I do apologise. Yeah, I'm not quite sure. If the person you know who you are, if you want to sort of respond again, just to make it a bit clear, we can come back to you later. Um, uh, next one, in your opinion, based on experience, how prevalent do you think chemsex is in Glasgow, Scotland? Has, be, has been difficult for researchers to get a proper handle on this. So how big do you think the scene is these days? Um, I, can't, I can't talk really for now, because um, mm. I, well, I I'm not on Grindr, I'm not on you know, uh, BBRT, the kind of places that, the, that those sort of meetups um, would have happened. I'm not on any of them anymore. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm I'm aware of the people who supply to those kind of events, um, and there's certainly not less of them. There's more of them, shall yeah. we say? Um, so I, I don't. I, 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 couldn't... I suppose we, because we we work with it in across Scotland. I mean, we know it is increasing. And it used to be a few years back, it was like you were saying yourself, this is a London thing or a Manchester thing, but it really has developed up here. But we're seeing, like you did, very core communities of people who all know each other and they have their own community for yeah. this work. But there is a lot of the kind of around it of people yeah. using the drugs as well. I mean, I mean, and, and absolutely, <clears throat> sort of, if we go to 20, 2013, 2014, mm. um, 2013, when you would log on to BBRT's sort of page uh, on Glasgow and you know, 2012, 2013, you'd be lucky if there was eight or nine people on on the page. Um, you know, by the end of 2014, you would log on to BBRT in Glasgow and there would be three or four pages of entries, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. Um, so there was a clear shift certainly towards uh, you know that kind of bareback group sex mm. um, thing, um, you know, and there was obviously you could see the increase in you know in in chems, yeah. and, you know, I, oh, there was a kind of oh, the, the you know the, the slamming thing was still a very un, still quite a still quite a kind of out I mean there was more people doing it mm -hmm. um as I was kind of finishing up with it shall we say um but it was still kind of it was, it was kind of it was kind of it was it was it was the <laughs> we were the ones that were looked down on most shall we say right. yeah um, okay uh, and it was you know it was the thing that you could get abused you know if you brought it up with the wrong people um you know verbally abused I mean um, because it, it was it was considered you know, the most shameful thing that you could have you could have done in sure, some pages. Okay. I've got you. Um, um, okay, let's um, I'll move on to this one. 
if you could give a young LGBTQI person struggling with alcohol, drugs, stroke, mental health, one piece of advice, what would it be? Um, well, this is quite profound now, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> I thought this would be an easy one, actually. I thought I this was like, you know, uh, don't, don't do drugs, just say no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think I think it's kind of I'm not I'm not going to you know, I'm not I'm not going to turn around and say that you know just say no if it's it's not ideal right <laughs> however <laughs> um, you know we often find ourselves in places and situations that we wouldn't necessarily have sort of planned or willed for ourselves um but kind of be careful of you know um of who you trust as well you know um who you're willing to do certain things with um you know be open about what you're doing and what you're you know trying not to kick yourself on um mm about what it is that you're doing. Um, and, you know, read as much as you can about about what it is that you're participating in. Um, I know that sounds like, like trying to have as much knowledge about what it is that you're doing. Um, and try to, if you're going to do it, try to do it as safely as you can. I know that sounds terribly hypocritical of me. Um, you know, but, you know, it, and, and that, that involves, you know, things that if you, you know, if you are using, you know, uh, injecting, make sure you've got fresh injecting equipment, you know, um, you know, make sure that you know what it is that you're putting in a, you're putting in a syringe. Um, you know, if, you're, if you're doing G, make sure that it's your own G and you know what the kind of makeup of it is. Um, I know that these are all kind of, sort of handy hints more than anything. Yeah, but, but it's very much about knowing ed- what you're doing, educate yourself and uh-huh. trust the people you're with. You know? uh-huh. um, because, uh, you know, I, I, I have seen things kind of go kind of quite spectacularly awry because, again, you know, there's not been that communication or understanding mm-hmm. um, of, you know, what everybody's whatever he's involved in or you know you know if there's five people rock up at a party uh, and all the drugs go out the table not every these drugs are going to be the same you know <laughs> no, that's um, true. Yeah, yeah. and uh, you know so to look after your own your own stuff <laughs> okay. always say i know that's not a, i know that <laughs> ideally don't do it but um but know, that's but not that, what you we don't, but we don't live in that world we, the real world these things happen and it's the same way that we work with our service users we're not that type of uh, group that says don't do this what we do is try and educate everyone make sure they know what they're doing and to do everything as safely as possible and we can give them the help and support if they need to make changes in what they're doing so very much that we've got our response from the question we had confusion with earlier right okay i suppose i was just trying to ask if addiction is not taken seriously when a gay or bi man is presenting and what we do about that. So that's very much about like, it goes back to your experience with the GP, I think. It's like that kind of, 
assumption that it's just part of who you are, you know, and not taken seriously. Yeah, I mean, and I think it's, it sounds terrible. I think there's, a, there's also a kind of lack of, and it, it, again, this might be something that might be changing just because of changes in laws and how gay people are living their lives. You know, you know there was, you know, you're, you're no, you're now no longer, you know, the, the lonely homosexual on his own or the, the lonely lesbian on their own. Um, you know, we now have. We now have families, um, you know, we, we can be part of couples and have children. So um, I know that sounds terrible. I don't know whether sometimes people viewed your kind of life as a bit sort of pointless anyway. So why not go and get rollicking pissed, you know? Mm. Um, so what if you don't wake up in the morning? You know, there was a kind of slight lack of concern. You know, it was almost as if well, there was an idea that well, maybe nobody, nobody really relies on you. Um, mm, yeah, I, I don't know if that was pervasive in the attitude. Uh, and it might change now that you know that we are now <laughs> acceptable members of society with partners and, and, and children and marriage, you know. Mm. Um, so I don't know if that came into it. You know, there was a kind of you know, I saw what if you're drunk every if you're drunk, if you're drunk seven nights a week, what does it matter? It's only you. You know? To be sort of devil's advocate, do you think then that the acceptance by society with marriage and adoption and kids has made us more valued members of society because of that? Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, maybe outwardly, <laughs> we're seen as more valued. Uh, mm -hmm. I think it's, you know, maybe. I don't know. I'm. I'm not the. I, I'm. I'm not the best person to talk about. I'm not. <laughs> not a massive advocate of marriage, nor having children. So, um, and uh, if that's your thing, on, on you go for it. But um, it's, it doesn't appeal to me, and I kind of wonder if it's, if it's, you know, it's a, it's a kind of useful way for. I don't know. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to leave it at that point. Uh -huh. So. I'm going to wrap up because we're nearly coming up to an hour and a half now. Sorry I, about that. <laughs> no, absolutely not. I mean, I'm really sorry about the questions we've been unable to answer, um, but I'm sure we'll try and get an answer to you uh, back at work in the next day or so, and we'll look after the questions. Um, uh, let me just say this recorded version of this will actually be available on our YouTube channels as soon as possible, and we should be turning the audio into a podcast as well, and so we'll be publishing that on our social media so you know it's available. Uh, I'd like to thank you all for attending, and a special thanks to Scott Agnew for what's been a fantastic uh, chat and thank webinar. You. I still hate that word, but yeah, thank you. <laughs> thank um, you Scott. If you'd like to know more about what Scott is up to, uh, please look for him on social media or visit his website, which is www.scottagnew.co.uk. Don't, don't go to that. That's not been done up. That That's crap. not been touched since have you, got, have you got a better one? No, you, it's, not, it's, not been, it's, it's not been updated since 2013. <laughs> That's why the pictures are so out of date. Yes. <laughs> well, okay. I, I, as, as we explained, I, cannot, uh, <laughs> I got a week in a drug issue ongoing about 2013. So That's stop right. updating so, update the media. website. Google them on social media. Yeah. Um, and to find out more about us at SX, uh, our work and future events like this, have a look for us on social media or see our website s-x.scott. That seems to be it. Thank you all for attending and have a lovely evening. Good night. Thank you, Scott. Thank you. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks, Evan. To find out more about Scott and his next gigs, 
please visit his social media channels on Facebook and Twitter. For more information on the work we do at Essex and Waverley Care, please visit our websites www.s-x.scot and www.waverleycare.org.